to Human Matters. I'm Deborah Stone, and this podcast explores the new insights that research brings into how we understand what it is to be human. We're coming to you from the studios of the Australian Catholic University, a hub for humanities study. Human infants are the most helpless of any species. Young giraffes can stand within minutes of birth, and baby sea turtles head off for independence as soon as they are born. But our children require a long and expensive investment of time and attention to become functioning and self-sufficient adults. Unfortunately, there are some parents who just can't manage the task, whether temporarily or for the long haul. The decision to remove a child from a biological parent is always difficult. So is ensuring that the child is well cared for elsewhere. We know foster families often give children who can't be with their own parents the best alternative. But making foster care work continues to be an enormous challenge for foster families, child protection workers and policymakers. ACU historian Dr Nell Musgrove has studied the history of foster care and what we can learn from it. Her book, with former foster child and fellow academic Deirdre Michelle, is titled The Slow Evolution of Foster Care in Australia, a title which gives a sense of how difficult it has been to get improvements in this very important area of social policy. She's our guest today on Human Matters. Welcome to the program, Nell. Thanks. Let's start with the good news. Your title refers to the evolution of foster care in Australia, so that suggests at least some things have improved. What are we doing right, or at least better than we used to? One of the things that we have a much better understanding of now is that large numbers of children who come into foster care have experienced some kind of trauma, even if that trauma is just the trauma of having to separate from their family. And the fact that foster carers are trained to be prepared for children who may have experienced trauma, even if some are trained better than others, uh, is a really important thing. And the fact that there's an awareness in the system that this is a reality for many of the children. In the past, there was really not an understanding of this, um, partly because of developments in psychology that make us think about trauma in new ways, but also just changing ideas about childhood where in the past there was a bit of an attitude of, well, now that we've put you somewhere that we've decided is safe, you can just get on with it. We now know that that's not really true. And in that way, I think we are doing better for foster kids than we did in the past. I also think another really important change has been the attitude towards contact between foster children and their families, whether that's their parents or their wider families. We know that that's a difficult aspect of negotiating foster care because family visitations can also bring instability and behavioural problems with them. And in some cases, it's just not possible because relationships with families are so broken or so problematic. In the past, the starting point was nobody has contact with their families, except in extreme circumstances like they're about to die. And we know how much damage that's done to people, that there were so many families who could have benefited from 
having some kind of contact with each other. And until well into the 20th century, the policy was that family contact was blocked in most cases. So on those two fronts, I think our research found that we're definitely doing those things better. And what about the other side of the coin? Are there there things that we're not doing as well as we were 100 years ago? In some ways, that's a really difficult question to answer because as a society, we have such different expectations for children now than we did in the past. But one way I like to think about it is to think about a typical child or young person leaving foster care 100 or 150 years ago and how they compare in terms of preparation for life and opportunities for flourishing in life, how they compare to a typical child in the wider population. And in that respect, I think there's definitely an argument that the gap has grown, that 150 years ago, when across Australia, governments were starting to set up their first statutory child welfare systems, they were, yes, they were only sending girls off to learn to be domestic servants and they were sending boys off to be general servants and farm labourers. But for many, many of those children's peers in the wider working class population, those were the same opportunities that children who weren't growing up in institutions or foster care were following as well. I don't want to overstate the extent to which they were on an equal footing because it's still really hard to make your way as a young person in the world if you don't have good support from your family and if you have grown up under what are undoubtedly difficult circumstances. But throughout the 20th century, the educational gap between children growing up in out-of-home care and a typical Australian young person in the wider population grew. And I think that we see from recent debate in the media about the necessity of raising the leaving of care age, that that's very true now as well, that a typical young person in the wider society is much more likely to stay on with some kind of support for from their family well into their 20s. And foster kids who've grown up quite possibly not even with one family during their whole childhood are cut loose at 18 and we definitely spoke with people who told us that that was their experience in foster care and that they really felt that that put them behind the eight ball when they were trying to make their way. Lots of them ended up succeeding but that was really down to their individual resilience and not because the system did a lot to help them. Mm. And as we have a much higher percentage of kids in tertiary education, that really becomes an important issue. That's right, because it's much easier to be successful at university if you've got a little bit of a safety net, because university studies take a substantial time commitment, so does working, and trying to work enough to be completely self-sufficient and study, it's really tough. And lots of people do it, but it's really good for people if there's some kind of safety net there. If things go wrong or when things get really tough, there is some sense in which there's someone who's responsible for giving you some kind of support. And I think that 
foster kids are much little former foster kids now by the time they get to university. Uh, just it's much harder for them to find that safety net and the system could address that. So let's talk about what causes children to be removed from their biological families. In the past, um, we know, for example, there were many Aboriginal children who were removed, um, the children who became the stolen generations, often because workers had no understanding of the families whom they were growing up with. Were there other children removed for reasons that we would now consider invalid? Probably one of the best known examples of that is children born to single mothers who experienced intense pressure to relinquish their children for adoption, particularly in mid-20th century Australia, where this was seen as a good solution for the mothers and there was a high demand for families who wanted to adopt babies. So that's quite a well-known case. And I think in that instance, you can see that welfare workers and people working within the system are putting pressure to remove children. In another sense, we can see that poverty was a factor that led to children in the 19th century in particular being separated from their families. And in this case, it wasn't so much that people went out and made decisions that children ought to be removed from families, but simply that colonial society had very, very few social welfare benefits available to people. There were charities that you could turn to, but charities could turn you down. And they made fairly clear judgments about whether people did or didn't fit the kind of people that they wanted to help. When governments started introducing child welfare departments, it was one of the first sources of government social welfare relief that people could turn to. And if a family was in crisis, the thought of separating from their children might be awful, but it also might mean survival. And so in a very real sense, we can see that families who we might think could be helped in many other ways to stay together now were separated in the past because of poverty. So are we removing fewer children today than we used to? Certainly we're less likely to completely cut children off from their families than we were in the past. But whether we're proactive about removing or whether we're trying to avoid removing at all costs does seem to fluctuate much more quickly than it used to. And it does seem to be in response to media and public scandal about cases where something went horribly wrong because a child was removed or something went horribly wrong because a child wasn't removed. And I understand that it's difficult because everyone is saddened and shocked when something goes really wrong for a child in out-of-home care, whether that is the, the worst of them dying or even if it's them being injured or harmed in another way. But it's not always clear that being seen to take action about these things is necessarily producing a thoughtful and long-term and sustainable improvement in the system. I'm very cautious about holding individual social workers too responsible for their decisions to remove or not remove. 
there's got to be personal accountability, but I can also think of too many cases over the last 10 or even 20 years where a particular social worker probably made a decision that any other social worker would have made. Then something goes horribly wrong in the case and then there's a lot of scrutiny on an individual caseworker. As I said, I think individuals have to be accountable for their decisions, but I'm a really big advocate for thinking about the system's responsibility in child welfare, because in so many cases, what we heard in our research when we talked to both foster carers and social workers or other people who work in out-of-home care was that often the system puts them in a position where they can't make the decision that they would really like to because the system is responding to either economic or political pressure that requires them at a particular time to respond in a particular way. And therefore, we know the power of the system, so let's really focus systemically on what our failings are and what we could do better. And is that about more money? To some extent, I think that more money is definitely called for, but it's also about using that money for the right things. Um, We had a very clear sense from foster carers that the payments that they get for caring for children helps them to be able to do that work. Many of them really couldn't afford to do it if they didn't get some kind of assistance. But equally, those same people were a little bit sceptical about whether just increasing foster care payments was really going to make sure that kids got better homes. But almost everyone we spoke to also said they would like more support. So more time from their social workers, more access to counselling with their foster kids, more kinds of that support. And a large part of the reason that that kind of support is limited does have to do with funding. What's the trajectory for most children who are removed? Do they typically go straight to a family and remain there? Or is it more likely that they will be bounced around between multiple placements? Well, right up for kids in care today, permanency is a huge issue. It's something that is highly valued but we struggle for. And we didn't speak with anyone who is in foster care or providing foster care at the time that we spoke to them, but we did speak with people who'd been in foster care as recently as 2010. And consistently, the stories that we were hearing from people involved multiple placements and that having a significant impact on them growing up. So there certainly are cases where people have been lucky, but I would say that typically foster children are likely to move around to some extent. Interestingly, that's actually something that I would say we're not doing as well on as we were in the past, because as part of our research, we did a study of siblings in foster care from 1870 to 1890. And what we were initially interested in was how good the system was at using foster care to keep siblings together. But one of the other findings that came out of that study 
was that by the 1890s, which was when Victoria had found some stability in how it was going to operate its foster care system, it was about 15 years after it had introduced foster care. The typical outcome for siblings who entered foster care together was that they tended to stay in their first foster home until the point that one of them aged out and was sent off to a work placement. And at that point, foster care placements started to become a little less stable. But we thought that was remarkably different from the situation that we have now. Um, And that was really interesting that in the 1890s, after about 15 years of trying to find their feet, the Victorian system at least actually had created a relatively stable one in terms of children staying in that first home. So why can't we get a more permanent setup for kids now? Is it to do with giving the biological parents second chances and the fact that kids tend to go back to their family of origin and then often come out again? Well, for a long time, child welfare authorities have said it's really important to put children in foster care who are not going to return to their families because that's going to help make this arrangement stable. So it's been a long time that people have been saying that that was important. On the other hand, I need to be really clear about my view on the importance of uh, connecting with family, and that is that except in the most extreme cases, biological parents do deserve that second chance or at least the children deserve that second chance to maintain some kind of connection with their family. Um, Even if that's not even their parents, it might be wider family. But we know that not just according to studies of children in care now, but from the people we spoke with who've been involved in foster care for over 50 years, not individuals, but as a collective, that even though it's hard work to deal with the instability that can follow contact with family, it does do good things for children to know something about their families. So this is sort of a long answer to say that contact with family doesn't necessarily help stability, but its priority shouldn't trump contact with families, I think. But there are also children who can't be with their families and for them, permanency is really important. And when we spoke with carers about that, we got a really mixed sense of how our plans for permanency are working and the pros and cons of shifting from foster care to permanent care. People felt that there was an insecurity around foster care, that there was a knowledge that it was a lot easier for a child to be taken out of foster care and for you to be separated from them. But they also said that the services in foster care are a lot better than the services for permanent care. And certainly for those people who are right on the edge of being able to manage financially to provide for their foster kids they were concerned about the loss of payments if they were to move to permanent care. It was a really difficult conversation to reach a clear conclusion about because it was really obvious to us that the foster carers we spoke with cared deeply about their foster children 
and wanted to have lifelong connections with them. There, that was the group of foster carers we spoke with. There are, of course, also foster carers who do respite care and emergency care and work for them is quite different. But for the ones we spoke with who were hoping to form lifelong families, really, with their foster kids, this decision about foster care versus trying to get permanent care was a difficult one. And some even said that if adoption was a possibility for the value of having a name of theirs formally and legally attached to the child, that might be worth all of the other supports that they would have to give up. Not everyone said that, but some people did. But lots of people felt that the lack of supports around permanent care were an issue for them, including permanent carers taking on the responsibility for arranging visits with birth families. And while lots of our foster carers were quite accepting of the importance of children having contact with their birth families, those birth families were also quite difficult personalities to engage with at times, and they would much rather for a social worker or another person working within the system to arrange those contacts. And that was possible in foster care, but not in the state that they were in when they moved to permanent care. So there are all these questions about how we actually achieve permanency, given that we're sort of working in with those restrictions of how those actual schemes work. Child being in foster care is never ideal, but given that some parents are unable to care for their children, what's the best system you can envisage? I think the best system is one that has lots of options because foster care is great for some kids. Institutions as we know them today, which are really much more home-like settings, but residential care um, is not foster care. It's a type of institutional care where a small number of young people live in a house with staff. That's a good model or the best model for some people. There's also been lots of um, experiments with models of therapeutic residential care and therapeutic foster care that show really good results for some children and some young people. And there are other models that help people transition to independent living as they get older. I think in terms of diversity, we do have a, quite a lot of options in the system now and including increasing use of kinship care, which I think is another really good option where children essentially are in a foster care placement, but it's with a family member. Again, the drawbacks around kinship care are that in some places, that's not paid at all and not as well supported as foster care. In other places, it's treated almost as the same thing. But I think that there's no one-size-fits-all model because every kid in care has a different story. And even as kids grow up in care, their story and their needs change. And having a system that has the capacity to adapt to that is I think the key for success rather than there being a one-size-fits-all model that is the best form of care. 
Well, let's hope that the work you and Deidre have done informs an improved um, system as we go forward. Nell, thank you for being part of Human Matters today. And thanks too to producers, ACU Media Production students, James Mitchell and Trey Karunaratna, who are producing this podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to review it and share it so that other people can find it. I'm Deborah Stone, and you've been listening to Human Matters. (laughs) 